Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Every time that I would try to do a British accent, British people would look at me and go like, are you taking a piss? Like, are you, are you trying to <laughs> joke about my accent? And I'm like, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to change my accent. Please bear with me. But there, there seems to be no admiration or respect for that. They just take it as mocking. So, and they're always like, are you Dick Van Dyke's daughter? Yeah. It's like, no, but I, so this really didn't work out. And in the four years I did not change my accent. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Rosanna Lopez. She is a location independent digital marketing expert that helps businesses sell more by setting up and running their affiliate marketing programs and their paid search advertising. Born and raised in the Netherlands, Rosanna did her MBA in Barcelona and has now been a full-time digital nomad with no permanent base since 2015. She travels the world with carry-on luggage only, has lived in over 45 different countries, and speaks four languages fluently, Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, and English, in which we'll be conducting this interview today. Rosanna is especially passionate about building nomadic communities, both online and in person, which she has done all around the world, including co-founding the Lisbon Digital Nomad Meetup, which is now the largest meetup group in the country of Portugal with over nine thousand members. Rosanna, welcome to the show. Hey, Matthew. So I'm super excited to have you here. Let's talk about where we are today. Unfortunately, we're not in the same place because if we were, we would definitely be sharing a bottle of wine. But I have just opened a bottle of Bordeaux, which I'm going to be drinking through this episode. And I am currently based in Asheville, North Carolina, on the east coast of the United States, where are you today and what are you drinking? <laughs> so I am in Lisbon right now. I've been here for six months and what I'm drinking. So I was just at a lunch and someone brought a beautiful Don Julio Reposado tequila. And because of that, I can't go back to wine. So I've already had some tequila. I am finishing the last little bit of mezcal that I have at my house. 
And after that, I'll probably move to my own tequila that I have here. But yeah, it sounds hardcore, but uh, I just I just like nipping it really slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. And I also really appreciate a, a good mezcal, which I learned to appreciate when I lived in Mexico, because yes. I feel like before I spent extended time in Mexico, I was not very familiar with mezcal. I was familiar with tequila, of course, but mezcal is really really something quite special, especially when you get a really nice mezcal, which it sounds like you have today. Have you been to Oaxaca? I have not, unfortunately, no. I'm excited to go, though. That's the source, the source of this beautiful golden water. Can you describe mezcal for people that haven't had mezcal? Can you sort of explain what it is and maybe what people might want to look for if they're trying to find a good mezcal? Yes. So actually, the easiest and quickest way to help you understand what it is, is it's kind of like a tequila. It comes from the maguey, which is a plant, you know, similar plant to what tequila is made of. And it's got a smoky flavor. So the plant actually gets burnt in a pit. And this is what gives it the smoky flavor because this plant just, uh, you know, it's so sweet when you burn it, it starts caramelizing on the inside and then they ferment it and, and the whole process um, goes pretty similarly to other liquors. But yeah, that's, that's what a mezcal is. And uh, Oaxaca is, is one of the regions where it comes from. It's amazing. And it goes perfect with spicy Mexican food. So spicy Mexican food and really good mezcal is just like a dream evening that could just last forever in Mexico. Completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. I want to go way back and ask you about growing up. You were born and raised in the Netherlands. Can you talk a little bit about that? And growing up, where did your interest in travel come from when you think back? If anyone knows The Hague, I'm from a shitty town close to The Hague. Uh, It's very boring. Nothing goes on there. I lived there until I was about 23. I'm an only child and like good immigrants. So my dad's Portuguese, my mom's Dutch. And like good immigrants, we would go to Portugal as often as possible, at least two times a year, but most of the years, three times a year. But only after I moved to Barcelona did I start traveling a bit more. That's, I guess, where it started. So let's talk about Barcelona, because that is one of my other favorite cities in Europe. Love Barcelona. I go there whenever I can, even if it's just a quick stop through for a couple of days. Can you talk about your decision to go to Barcelona, what you were doing there, how long you stayed, and what was it like for you? Yes. So actually, when I was finishing my studies in the Netherlands, I didn't really know what to do, but I had traveled with a friend to Barcelona and I absolutely loved it. And I basically, I was thinking about my next move. What should I do after finishing my studies? And I figured that I could apply for a scholarship. And this was quite an important moment for me because I did get the scholarship. And yeah, that's what financed most of my MBA in Barcelona. So I moved there supposedly for one year to just study that and to finish that. It was a full-time MBA. But yeah, I just loved it so much. I got stuck for four whole years. So I just started my professional career there. You could say my, my marketing career started in Barcelona. 
And then that was also your base where you said you started doing international travel by yourself and going to other countries you'd never been to. What was that like? What were some of the highlights of those years in terms of your travel experiences? Well, typically it would be to a place where a friend was from. So they would show it to me from their perspective and just drag me along everywhere. So that was beautiful. Also just in Spain, a lot of travel in Spain itself, because Spain is such a diverse country as well, right? There's so much to see and the people are different everywhere. I really like Spain. But also while living in Barcelona, it kind of felt like a holiday every weekend because an hour by train and you're at a beautiful beach, an hour and a half by train in the winter and you can go skiing, you know? So it's really well located as well. And I agree with what you said entirely about the rest of Spain as well, right? So Spain has so many super culturally different sections of it, right? So Catalonia is one amazing section, right, where Barcelona is. I spent over a month in Barcelona at one point, but I've gone back a number of times. Mm -hmm. But I've also lived for a month in Bilbao in the Basque Country, which is super special and amazing. They're very different. Super different. Even different language, different people, different food. Super different. I've spent a month in uh, Valencia. I have nice. spent uh, time going through Andalusia in the south and uh, spent some time in Madrid and all very, very different vibes, but consistently amazing food, amazing wine, incredible culture and, and history and everything. And it's just, it's an amazing place. I agree. I mean, Spain is one of my favorite places in Europe. It's just magical. And I go back as frequently as I can. Totally. Yeah. And I tell you the truth. I was so happy living in Barcelona at the time. So this is about 13 years ago. So happy about living in Barcelona. It was the perfect city, quite honestly. The quality of life was amazing. The vibe was just unbelievable. So yeah, I, I didn't actually leave because I wanted to leave after four years. The economical downturn hit Spain really badly. Like it was people my age... 50% was jobless. And I just didn't feel like I had opportunities to grow in my career at the time. So when I left, I really left with a sad heart. And where did you go next? What was your next move? I moved to London. And the funny thing, I had decided to move to London before ever going to London. I just knew I needed to make the next steps in my career. There was so much demand for people with marketing experience like myself. So the, yeah, completely different experience, but also different goal, right? I was in London for the job and a new experience, but I was going back to Barcelona every three months because I still had a lot of friends living there and I missed it so much. So I tried to keep in touch with the city. I love London as well. It's a really special city. A lot of just incredible things going on there. And I want you to talk a little bit about your experience there. And I'm also interested in your passion for music festivals, for the music scene, the underground music scene, all that kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that passion in general and how you integrated it into your life? Yes. Well, London has the most amazing music scene. I don't know if there are many places in the world that are like London. Have you ever heard of a, a website called Songkick? No. No. So essentially what it does is it, it scans your Spotify list and then you say in which city you're interested in tracking the artists that you like. So it then starts tracking those artists and it gives you a notification as soon as they have a, a, a gig or a, a concert planned uh, somewhere in the city. So in Barcelona, I always used to go to gigs already, but they weren't as frequent. 
And you could always kind of decide last minute if you were going to go or not get a ticket. In London, get on it because everything sells out immediately. So this song kick thing helped me to just always be on top of the tickets. I would always buy two tickets immediately, one for me, and then I'd try to convince a friend to come. And actually, at some point, I met a girl who had a very similar taste in music. And the music I'm mostly interested in is just indie bands, singer-songwriter, maybe some synth pop or something. I like that kind of stuff. And all the bands that I was tracking, indie bands, I was just obsessed with trying to find like a new band that only has like a thousand followers yet or whatever, right? And these play all the time in London. So yeah, and I luckily found a friend who had very similar taste as me. So we were just going twice a week, I'd say, let's say once a week on a bad week, but sometimes three times we were just going. It was like Thursday, we're going to this place. I've got tickets. Okay, cool. Who's, who are we seeing? I don't remember. Let's just go. So yeah, I just saw so many gigs and it was just, that really rocked my world in London. The other thing I want to ask you about on the music scene that you have mentioned to me that I had never heard of before you told me about it is the So Far Sounds sessions that you somehow find and attend around the world. Yes. Can you explain what those are and how that works? Yes. Anyone who loves going to see live music or discover new music or go to concerts, I recommend you to look up So Far Sounds. So think Sofa with an R and then sounds. But Sofar Sounds is the thing where you sign up for, in most cities, it's once a month, but it started in London because the person who started it was frustrated with the fact that he would go to a pub to listen to live music and people were just talking over the band. So he was like, I want to create a space where people just sit down, stop, don't look at their phones, don't talk with each other, just listen to a band, right? So the concept is this, you sign up, you only know the date, you sign up, you don't know who's playing. Then as a lottery, you're going to either get a ticket or not. And then if you get chosen, if you get picked, you get the address the day before. So the place where this uh, takes place is usually, it could be anything, someone's house, a school, a co-working space, typically places that you wouldn't expect a, a concert to be in, it could be a church. And then you only know who's playing by the time that you arrive. And the fun thing is that you learn so much about the local music scene because I've now been in, I, oh, I should have counted how many countries I've been in uh, to a sofa sounds, but I've been in Havana in Cuba. I've been in Madrid. I've been in Amsterdam, London, Mexico, Buenos Aires. I've been in, in many cities all over the world. You should check it out with the list of cities because it's crazy. Yeah, sometimes it's uh, it's uh, art, local artists and sometimes it's traveling artists who just kind of rotate in between all these cities. And it's typically a magical experience. And you just have to trust that they curate these artists really well. Usually they're not very famous, but a lot of people who are famous these days have gone through a Sofa Sounds at some point. So that's awesome. Yeah. The surprise element and the local music element. And it's a great way to meet people who also have an interest. There's always cool people hanging out at Sofa Sounds. So I definitely recommend it for anyone who loves gigs and especially if you're traveling. 
That's amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your traveling. I want to get into your transition that you made into being a full-time digital nomad. So you mentioned you did your MBA in Barcelona. You obviously became a marketing expert. You worked in the traditional corporate world doing that for a number of years in uh, in Barcelona, in London, et cetera. And then can you talk a little bit about after doing that, what was your, first of all, your decision-making process to choosing to become a full-time itinerant digital nomad? And then also, what was the actual transition process like from the traditional corporate world to doing your own thing and going that entrepreneurial route? Yes. So London, there's a lot that I like about it, but there was a lot that I didn't like about it. So one thing that I hated is the commute, for example. And I also, I was always working so hard. I had read about Nomad List and I was just looking around there and just seeing a bunch of cities that where the cost of living was the same as what I was paying for a room in East London, sharing a house with some people. And I was just like, wow, this is just crazy. Like I do online marketing for Christ's sake. What am I doing commuting to an office every day, I just kind of clicked in my head. And then I thought like, wow, there's still so many places that I haven't traveled to. And obviously you always have limited time in terms of holidays when you work in the corporate world. And especially a lot of those days would often go up to me visiting family. So I didn't even really have that much time to travel to new places. And then I just thought, okay, I'm just going to try this. So I had never freelanced before. I had also read the four hour work week. And then that, that sparked kind of like, I think what that book did for me is change how I perceived time and the value of time. It's just so logical, but this really made all the sense for me where Tim Ferriss says that he's just super overworked. He is just, you know, on the verge of breakdown. And then he realizes that his top four or five customers make up 80% of his income and that he's just answering customer service emails and taking care of logistics all the time, just work and work and working. And actually most of his day goes up to the small customers that he doesn't even really care about. So he's just like, okay, goodbye to all the customers. I'm just going to focus on my top clients, be better to them, try to upsell and cross sell to them. And then I suddenly, he suddenly finds himself with a very reduced work week. And this way of optimizing your time it became such a big thing for me. So now like being on a train in the morning in London was just, uh, it was just killing me. I couldn't do it anymore. So I started from the moment that I decided that I wanted to go nomadic and the moment that I actually got my first one-way ticket was probably six months in between that period. So I definitely started saving money more. I did have to reduce some of my costs because I love eating out and I maybe did that a little bit less. Also, I used to buy stuff all the time, clothes I didn't need, stuff I didn't need. It's more maybe as like a, a reward system for a very busy professional life. <laughs> kind of like, well, you worked so hard for this, you deserve this. So my house was filled with all kinds of stuff that I didn't need, to be honest. So I stopped buying a lot of stuff and I started reducing what I had in my house, selling stuff. The professional part is where I now needed to make money. And I thought, okay, well, online marketing is obviously a great way of earning money. 
but I never freelanced. So what I did is I went on some of these websites like People Per Hour and Odesk. Yeah, I put on, for example, a couple of packages where it was like, okay, by my expertise, I will have a one hour Skype call with you about affiliate marketing. So essentially the first person bought this like, I don't know, a week or two in. And then I made a presentation so that I actually knew what I was going to say in that hour and that I could kind of guide this conversation. And now I also had something to deliver afterwards, like as notes, right? So by setting really low expectations on these websites and then over delivering because I had so much experience by now, I could see that these people actually wanted to hire me for more stuff. Now that I have this confidence and I now by now also made my personal website, RosannaLopez.com. I quit my job. I think I had a pretty long notice period, like three months. I started telling everyone that I was going to start freelancing. And because I said it to everyone, I got uh, an old boss. He was starting a new job. And I was like, okay, this is cool. It's going to finance my life. So essentially, I now had a client on day one of my nomadic experience. So I basically had a 20-hour contract. I was going to do affiliate marketing for them. And it was financing my travels and my my life. So that's the transition, more or less. One of the things that you sort of alluded to was your reduction in consumer spending as mm -hmm. you started to move into this transition. And I know you are now a minimalist that travels the world with carry-on luggage only, as do I. And I would really be curious about how you transitioned to there, because I can tell you when I first left the United States, I did not have carry-on luggage only. I had an obscene amount of luggage. Okay, <laughs> It was ridiculous. And then I eventually downsized to carry on luggage. And now it's like, I mean, that is just like such an unbelievably valuable and fulfilling part of my lifestyle. Isn't that great? It's amazing. How long does packing take you? Oh gosh. I mean, I don't know, less than 30 minutes for sure. Yeah. Isn't that a liberating feeling that you can go anywhere at any given time? In London, it's just so easy to spend money and buy shit you don't need all the time. You earn well and then you work hard and then you reward yourself with stuff you don't need. I just realized that, I don't know, I just, uh, at some point I was researching stuff about how other nomads were traveling and whatnot. And I was like, yeah, I don't need all this shit. So I made all kinds of mistakes in the beginning, too many shoes, stuff that didn't match. So as a woman... You still want to, I don't know, I want to look nice sometimes, right? So I like to pick the clothes that I have that, is, that I can combine easily. So for example, I have one pair of black pants, especially in Europe, that combines with all my shirts. I actually have a pretty impressive vintage shirt collection, may I say. So combining stuff. So I have a, a black skirt that also works with the shirts and with the other stuff that I combine it with so that I can be very clever about what I wear. It is carry on, but it is quite tight. So I have to be really diligent and really careful about how I roll stuff. I use cubes to condense it even more. Are there any cool gadgets that you travel with, Matt? Oh, plenty. I mean, I travel with, for example, an on-bottle wine aerator. Oh. I travel with a portable espresso maker at all times that makes real espresso. Oh. Is it AeroPress or 
No. No, because as far as I'm aware, AeroPress does not make real espresso. It's like, that's like one of those stovetop things. It's more like a, an Americano kind of thing. Well, I mean, to make a real espresso, you need to have 16 bars of pressure by definition, right? Wow. And so you can't get that on a stovetop, right? And so the espresso maker that I use is called a hand presso is the name of the brand. Mm. And what it is, you can actually use it without electricity, which is amazing. Mm. It has a bicycle pump technology where there's actually the handle comes out and you pump it up like a bicycle pump. And it actually pumps up the gauge on the machine to 16 bars of pressure, at which point all you need is boiling water. And then, of course, your espresso. And you can either use uh, pods like Illy pods or you can use ground espresso. Okay. And all you need is boiling water. So literally... If you're at a campfire, you can get boiling water. If you're on an airplane, you can get boiling water. Obviously, if you're in a, a you know an apartment or a hotel or something, you, of course you can. So anywhere you can get boiling water, you can make real espresso. It comes out with crema and the whole thing. So and it's, and it's quite small. Do you think you're a little bit of a coffee snob, Matt? It's really interesting <laughs> because I don't know that my coffee taste is actually that sophisticated. <laughs> I am an espresso drinker. It's the only thing I drink. I never order anything other than straight espresso with nothing in it. That is all I order ever, right? So if I'm in Colombia, if I'm in Italy, like no matter where I am, it's the only thing I drink. I don't ever do a cappuccino. I don't ever mix it with anything. I don't ever put additional water to make an Americano, like never. It's just straight espresso. As a result, that's, and I always do dark roast. Okay. Okay. Which I learned in Colombia, they think I'm very pedestrian <laughs> because I went to this coffee tasting mm-hmm. in Colombia and they were explaining that the more sophisticated, uh, complex types of flavor profiles are all medium roasted, right? Because that's what brings out the different floral notes and the, yeah, all these different flavor complexities come out in the medium roast. If you dark roast it, basically all you're doing is you're burning out all of the flavor, and then you have this dark roast of coffee. And of course, I love dark roast, right? I raised my hand in the middle of this coffee tasting, and I was like, are you saying that all of the people in the entire country of Italy are basically unsophisticated? Yeah. Have unsophisticated coffee palates? And the Colombian guy looks at me, he's like, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I know what I like, and so I bring my espresso maker with me, but... Well, let's talk about some of your travel experiences. I would love to get your take. I know you have been to Carnival in Rio, as have I. And I would love to get your take on that and how that experience was for you. Well, I've been twice to the Carnival in Rio, but the first time I had just arrived, Carnival was on and I was there with a Dutch friend. I had never been and I didn't really have uh, local friends yet. That was a completely different experience. Last February, I was there again. I could connect with my friends that I made previously, and I still don't really have words for it, Matt. I love a good party, and this is the ultimate party. And the energy of the Cariocas is just, I have never seen anything like it. Like, if you like a party, by all means, please go to Carnival Rio. So what about you, Matt? Did you go to Blocos? What did you do? Well, I was there for about two months. Was not this year, yeah? No, no, this was like five years ago. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to Carnival. And then I also wanted to be in Rio during not Carnival time to see it at a more kind of normal time. But yeah, Carnival, I mean, it was amazing, right? So you have all the street parties and everything. And then you have 
we went to the main event at the Sambodrome, right? Mm -hmm. Which you buy tickets for, and it is just like completely bonkers. I mean, they've got these Samba schools, right? These massive, like 5,000 person dance troops that have been training literally for 364 days for this, right? And then they just come through with floats and dancers and costumes like you've never seen. Starts at 10 o'clock at night, goes to about seven o'clock in the morning every single night. I mean, it's literally 90,000 people. I mean, this is like an American football stadium sized type of situation on two sides, right? So it's like kind of like bleacher type setup on two sides and then Mm -hmm. a straight road in the middle. And they have about 90 minutes uh, to come down and do their thing. I mean, it was mind blowing. I mean, Rio is just unbelievable. And it is probably the single most extraordinarily beautiful, breathtaking city that I've ever been to in my life. It's amazing. I know. Totally. I don't know how many parties I must have been to, but I was on a roll, I tell you. And I was working my ass off as well. So this was quite a tiring period in February. So I am just so incredibly lucky to have such cool local Carioca friends who are interesting, politically engaged, open to, you know, all colors and backgrounds and they know people within the LGBTQ community or, you know, they know the block is where the cool kids hang out basically. Right. So I would get all the tips from them and then we'd go. I always say I love mornings, but only if I stayed up long enough to experience it. But in this case, some of the best parties were super early in the morning. So there were parties where they were kind of illegal. So you'd have to like, check this particular account on Instagram at four in the morning. And then you'd head there at five in the morning. And I never thought that I would be able to even get up at those kind of hours, unless it's like for a flight or something. But clearly, if it's a party, I'm game. So yeah, I ended up actually going more to morning and day parties and then sleeping at like 10pm and then going to yeah the next parties the next days. So but it's just such a beautiful experience. Cariocas, man, they must be some of the funnest people in the world. Like they're always down for a party. There's music, there's dance, there's singing. Just the energy for life is something that I don't know if I have experienced it to that level anywhere else. And just being in there and absorbing that is the most beautiful thing. I agree. I recommend Brazil to everybody. It is one of my favorite countries in the world. Well, I know another festival that you've gone to that I have not yet been to is the Lantern Festival in Chiang Mai in Thailand. And I want to just ask if you can just explain what this is for people that have never even heard of it or seen pictures, explain what it's like. And then I would love to hear about your experience there because it's totally on my bucket list. Well, Loi Kratong is the name. Loi Kratong feels like a New Year's Eve in Chiang Mai. There are, uh, it's, it's a massive, massive party. So, uh, there's fireworks, those lanterns that you often see on pictures of Thailand. You see these lanterns that people release. Those are released on like Loi Kuchang, One of the days it's all about releasing flowers into the river. And actually officially, I think the second day is when you release the lantern, but I'll tell you the truth. It's just a a little bit of a mashup of both of those for two days, basically. I believe the thought of letting the, it's not about making the, the lantern go. It's not about making a wish. It's about letting things go, you know, letting negative things go or letting anything that you need to let go 
to just send that off with the lantern. Actually, the first time that I went to Thailand, it's funny because I didn't even know this was happening. I was in Bangkok and someone asked me at the hostel, a Thai person was like, oh, where are you going next? I was like, oh, I'm going to Chiang Mai next. And they're like, oh, for Loi Kratong. And I'm like, no, what is this? But uh, yeah, that was perfect timing. And um, so, yeah, when I arrived in, in Chiang Mai for the very first time, I got to experience that. And I think I've been to three Loi Kratongs in the meantime. So, yeah. That's amazing. Like New Year's Eve, but it's in November typically. That's so awesome. I have actually spent a few months in Chiang Mai, but I've not been there for the festival. So I really want to get back for that because it's such an amazing city. I want to ask you some more general questions about how you roll, how you travel. And I know that one of the things that you've mentioned to me that's important to you is that you, when you are in a place, you try to learn the local accent, the local slang specifically. And I'm curious if you can talk about that, because obviously, I mean, anyone that's traveled through South America certainly knows that the accent in the northern part of South America is going to be very different than it would be in Argentina, for example, right? Or if you've been to Mexico versus Colombia versus Argentina, very different type of accent. And I'm curious if you can talk about why that's so important to you and then how you do that. With your English, for example, do you speak with a British accent when you're in London and then with an American accent when you're in the U.S.? Can you talk about how you do that and why that's so important to you? Yeah, so actually my accent in the U.K., never really changed. Every time that I would try to do a British accent, British people would look at me and go like, are you taking a piss? Like, are you, are you trying to <laughs> joke about my accent? And I'm like, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to change my accent. Please bear with me. But there, there seems to be no admiration or respect for that. They just take it as mocking. So, and they're always like, are you Dick Van Dyke's daughter yeah it's like no but so this really didn't work out and in the four years I did not change my accent and I did not get good at at, at the British accent I do love yeah spitting a a sentence here or there sometimes but yeah British people are they call me out immediately (laughs) but in Brazil I try to put a Brazilian accent on but that one I don't always nail and in Mexico so I learned Spanish with my Mexican classmates in Barcelona, because actually I thought that I would probably do fine in Spain when I moved there because I spoke Portuguese already. And boy, was I wrong. I clearly did not know how to speak Spanish. And the Mexican accent to me is so much more clear to understand. So I learned so much faster with them than with a Spanish accent. So for a long time, I actually spoke a bit like a Mexican person and I was often mistaken for a Mexican. And then I had Argentinian friends in Barcelona as well. And just for jokes, they wanted to teach me the accent from Buenos Aires, the, the let's say the porteño accent. I also dated a, someone from Buenos Aires for three years and then my accent completely changed to Porteña, almost vichera. Vichera means that you're from the fucking hood, you know? (laughs) So it was uh, was quite a a rough accent, I was told. But this stuff always helps. Like when I go to Buenos Aires, 
I, and especially if I hear it all the time, I adapt to it immediately. I could take it over. And it's funny because my Spanish isn't completely perfect, like especially not the grammar. I've never really went to school for this or learned Spanish properly. Literally, I'm just a parrot trying to mimic people. Right. So sometimes I screw up with the grammar and then you, you see them looking at me like, are you stupid or did you not go to school? Like, how did you just say this wrong? You know? So that's funny that I wanted to make it as far as possible without revealing my true identity of <laughs> Dutch girl. So now when you rock through, like if you were to do a trip through South America, would you be able to just switch like between Mexican and Argentinian and Colombian and like you're, wherever you are, can you just yeah. switch into that accent? It depends. So my accent used to be Mexican. Now it's more Argentine. Well, actually, right now it's a mix of everything, which is weird. But if I go to Buenos Aires, I try to pull it off to sound as porteña as possible. And actually, it's really funny. Sometimes I literally just say hello in anywhere and people are like, oh, you're from Argentina? Because it, they say it like this, hola. It's, I don't know what, I mean, I guess it's just a way of saying it. And they'll be like, oh, you're, you're from... Argentina. So that's always funny. But I went back to Mexico last time and I asked my friend at the end of our stay, I think I stayed there for like two months. She, I was like, well, it's not the last time I was there. It's the first time maybe. I was like, tell me the truth. Am I or am I not Mexican to you? And she said, you're a Mexican who lived in Buenos Aires for a little bit. So that means that it's not perfect enough, but I definitely make an effort. I love being mistaken for a local because it brings you places. It keeps you safer. If people do find out that you're not from there, they love it. Gives you discounts when you're shopping. Totally, man. Yeah. Negotiation <laughs> power, leverage. I, You know what I love saying in Buenos Aires as a joke? So I'm from the Netherlands, right? The queen of the Netherlands is Argentine. So the, the Dutch king got married to an Argentine woman. She's called Maxima. And everyone in Argentina knows of Maxima. So I always say that since she's the queen, it is mandatory to learn Spanish in an Argentine accent. I always love that some people fall for it and others are like, yeah, fuck off. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. This is a joke. <laughs> but, uh, but that's the joke that I always tell <laughs> I love that. Well, the other thing that I think is really interesting about you is that in addition to your passion and interest to in traveling to other countries mm. and learning those other cultures, you also pay very close attention to subcultures. 
that exist within those cultures. And I know you're a big fan of the drag shows, for example, <laughs> and things like that. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could start off maybe just talking at the macro level about what is it about subcultures in particular that is interesting to you and that you find fascinating. And then also, what is it then about also the drag scene that you're interested in? And you know, maybe share some experiences with drag shows that you've been to around the world. I think culture in general is super interesting. And I think what not, may have sparked this is that as a kid growing up with two cultures, I was very aware of the differences. And I think that Dutch culture and Portuguese culture are very, very different. But basically, I am just fascinated by culture. And there's this saying that I once heard, uh, if you don't know another culture than your own, you don't actually know your own culture. Because you don't know what is particular about it or what is special about it, what makes it different, you know, you don't know what is an actual thing that is only a thing in your group, right? So I've always had a fascination for culture in general and subcultures are just, I just think it's so cool because you know, it gives people a sense of belonging. It gives people a sense of who they are. It gives them an identity. It gives them something to be proud of. And I told you I was currently obsessed with drag queens as an example of a subculture that I love because, oh my God, they're just so much fun. And I admire them so much. I am obviously not part of the drag community, but I just think it's so cool. Think about it. Like, the language they use, the words they use, what are like particular expressions that they use? Who do they admire? Who are their icons? You know, stuff like I admire the icons of a lot of drag queens. I mean, Dolly Parton, come on. I love that they don't take themselves too seriously and they are usually super creative with their looks and what they bring to the runway or to their comedy or whatever type of drag queen they are. And they're just shapeshifters, you know? Some of these men look more feminine than I will ever look if I tried really hard, you know? I think that's just so amazing, the shapeshiftery that goes on. And I just think it's amazing. I think it's so much fun. And I recommend anyone who wants to know more about drag queens, maybe Netflix has almost all the seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. And it was recently RuPaul's 60th birthday. He's the queen. He is the drag queen. I really admire him. What I really like about RuPaul's Drag Race is that he brings something. It is a subculture, but he brings it to the screen for everyone to see, to the mainstream, to understand, to learn how to accept, to learn what it's about, to enjoy it and to understand it. Right. And I think that's just amazing. And here in uh, Lisbon, in case you're looking for a fun activity during the pandemic, there is the Airbnb experiences. Yep. So you can get an online experience with a group of drag queens here in Portugal. It is the most sold Airbnb experience in the world. I don't know if they're called drag taste on Airbnb, but they also do a live show here, which is super fun. There's dancing involved, there's singing involved, there's lip syncing, there's brunch, which is amazing. Mimosas, anything you want, really. Honestly, it's just my idea of happiness. <laughs> so uh, definitely recommend uh, checking that group out, either online or if you're here in Lisbon, go visit Drag Taste. It's really fun. You said that you've been to a cool drag show 
Matt? I've been to a number of drag shows Uh around the world. I think it's really interesting to go to drag shows in different countries to see the different cultural manifestations. So I've been to drag shows in Korea. I told you that I think the best drag show that I have ever been to in my life was in Cape Town, South Africa. For anybody that's been to Cape Town or is planning to go, the theater is called Gate 69. And this drag show there, I mean, it was the best one that I've ever seen for a number of reasons, right? First of all, so it was written produced and starring on stage by the same people, right? So they wrote it, they produced it, and they starred in it, right, themselves. The writing was brilliant. I mean, it was brilliant. It was so smart. It was hilarious, but it was also, like, really socially and politically poignant. Like, they really hit, like, real social issues in terms of gender stuff and all that and identity stuff and also... It was very funny. It was comprehensively well-written. And then the actual performance, like this quality and caliber of the singing. I mean, it was next level, professional caliber, stage musical performance level. I was, I mean, it was blew me away. I went with probably six or eight of my friends And all of us said that that was the best drag show we've ever seen. Wow. I can't wait to see it. This sounds like a real proper production ordeal. It was really special. Like, I mean, it had all of the things that you'd love about any normal, like fun, enjoyable drag show. It had like all of that fun and humor. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it was just like incredibly high quality in terms of the singing and in terms of just how smart and and socially and politically astute the writing was. Like, I mean, it was just on all levels. It was like premium. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Must be really hard that very first time that you get in drag and either you step out of your house or the club into normal worlds in a world where very often this stuff isn't really accepted. And actually a lot of drag queens and trans people suffer a great deal of violence because somehow some people get upset by this, right? Even though it doesn't affect them in any way. It's fascinating and it's really brave. And I think it's amazing. I think the times that I've seen drag queens dress up a straight cis man and turned them into, yeah, basically got them in drag. The feedback is usually so, they feel so empowered and they feel so much admiration. And men and women and other genders have all kinds of energy, you know, feminine energy, masculine energy. And this is something that we can explore without having to be uncomfortable or feel shame or be unsure about our sexuality. You know, if you know who you are and what you like and what you believe in and more power to you, it could be a cool experience. Well, in Carnival in Brazil, like for people that have never been, like it is amazing, like in terms of how much gender bending through costume there is during this particular festival. I mean, it was amazing. I was just, it's just an all around sensory experience where you're just looking around and you're trying to take in everything that's going on. And then like all of this really substantive and interesting stuff that's happening, you know, where you're trying to like analyze things at the same time. And it was just unbelievable. So I recommend that everybody go and you'll be able to see some pretty amazing things. At least start with a tutu. No, that's the very least you could do. (laughs) 
So let me ask you this, Rosanna, before the pandemic, let's just say not taking COVID into account, what was your ideal lifestyle structure, your travel cadence? How would you choose where to go and how long to stay? So I'll tell you what, uh, when I started, I made the mistake that I see a lot of new nomads make. I was moving like every two weeks. And also I didn't really know, I was literally just visiting friends all over Europe when I started. And then I started slowing down a bit, like one month at a time, slowing down a bit more, two months at a time usually. And now I'm at a stage where I'm more or less rotating in between countries that I already know, that I already love, that I'm already comfortable in. And then I try to add like one or two countries a year that I don't know yet. So I love spending time in Lisbon as well, because this is where a lot of my friends live. This is where there's a community of nomads that I am actively trying to grow, nurture, create stuff for. So there's not a summer that I've not been in Lisbon, actually. Let's talk a little bit about that now in terms of your passion for and commitment to community building, Mm -hmm. particularly amongst nomads. Can you start off a little bit and just talk about your passion for that, why it's so important to you, and then maybe give some examples about how you've gone about creating digital nomad communities all over the world. Well, I'll tell you what. So to begin with, nomads are a subculture of their own. And I think it's super interesting to see it from that perspective. You could say that a lot of nomads have a certain set of values in common about owning stuff and, and, you know, owning objects or things about what we value and how we want to spend our time. You could probably name a bunch of values that the majority of nomads kind of agree on. So there's something about them that unites them. There is a culture there, right? And then it's a lifestyle that has given me so much joy, so much happiness. And it's just something that I want to I don't know. I want to do stuff for my community. But anyways, what I think is a big issue for some nomads is uh, the loneliness or the lack of, you know, moving on constantly and not making deeper connections. And I quickly noticed that I wasn't going to be able to sustain this if I was just going to have these, hi, where are you from? What do you do? Conversations and then move on, right? So in Lisbon, I had some local friends, but they weren't going to hang out with me all day and like have lunch and dinner with me. And like, so at the time in Lisbon, there were, I don't know, a couple of cafes with Wi-Fi even. There weren't even that many good cafes to work from. Maybe there were two co-working spaces at the time. So I definitely hit those to try to meet people. But still, I was quite lonely. And I was like, but this city has so much potential. I just fell in love with the city again because I hadn't been for like six or seven years before coming there again in 2015 as a nomad. So I just thought I need to do something to unite people and to bring them together and to grow this community and put Lisbon on the map, just like Bali is a nomad hub or like Chiang Mai is a nomad hub or Medellin or, you know, there's a couple of these in the world. I just wanted to do something. I wanted people to come to Lisbon, help the local economy and the startups and mingle. And I wanted people to love their experience. Whenever you go to a place, it is so much more rich when you had a positive social, someone to 
spend it with, right? It doesn't matter if it's local or another traveler. It, it, oftentimes when you didn't like a place, it could be because you didn't like the people you were with at the time, right? Or maybe you liked a place so much because you had so much fun with the people you were hanging out with. So I just wanted everyone to just love Lisbon as much as I did. And I said to the hostel guy, can I do a meetup here? He's like, yes. How many people are coming? I'm like, I have no idea. Five people, 20 people. I have no idea. This is the first time I'm doing this. He said, okay, cool. 50 people came to that first meetup that I ever put on. This is October 2015, I think. But people were just so grateful that this existed. People, There were even some people who came from all the way from Porto just for this event. And it just showed to me such a success that I kind of got motivated to keep doing this. And I also put on smaller meetups in other places I visited. Just anywhere where I could see that there were no meetups being organized, I would sometimes put one up. But I was really passionate about the Lisbon one because I really had a connection to you know Portugal and Lisbon specifically. So what really changed everything is when I think I was in Vietnam at the time and a guy called Ash reached out to me saying, hey, I've been a nomad for a bunch of years. I'm moving to Lisbon. I'm going to be based there. I saw you put some meetups on and I want to start doing that too. And then he started doing a monthly meetup and those were pretty successful. And then summer came, I found myself in Lisbon. I was like, I'm going to throw myself into these meetups. I'm going to do a weekly meetup, weekly co-working day, weekly talk. And the meetups every week, they were massive mats. So there were starting to be like 60 people, 70 people, 80 people, 100 people every week. And you know how it goes with nomads, right? Word of mouth. Where are you at? Lisbon. Is it good there? Yes, come. I don't know how this went, but it really became a thing that summer. And it has not stopped being a weekly Thursday meetup ever since. That's amazing. Can you talk about what some of those meetup events are that you put on? Yeah. So uh, the Thursday meetup is always casual. We try to make that all about people just talking and having a drink, chatting, casual. No one has to do anything or listen to anything. We try to mix it up, do different bars. Then we have hikes. We have sports events. We have volunteering events. We have dinners, storytelling night, also comedy night. And luckily, anything we put up so far there's always people who love it and who want to come and it always fills up. So this is why we're trying to do as much as possible. So no one has to be lonely in this city. Can you give any tips that you may have for nomads, maybe at the earlier part of their journey for how they can, number one, find community on their travels. And number two, if they're interested, potentially be the ones who build community on their travels. Look at what's going on already because, you know, if especially for new nomads or people who've not lived in other countries before, how do we make our friends, Matt? We make friends because we studied with them. Maybe we lived in the same neighborhood. Maybe they're family members. Maybe we worked with them. I don't know if, uh, if you're a religious person and maybe you went to church with them, but that's how we make our friends normally, most commonly. And I think we now, with all these amazing platforms and even Facebook, we have the opportunity to connect with people based on our values or hobbies or interests, right? So I think that it's a good idea to, if you're a new nomad, check out the local Facebook pages that are like, I don't know, Medellin Digital Nomads, Mexico City Digital Nomads, Chiang Mai Digital Nomads. 
look if there's any events going on or ask what if it's not clear if there's anything going on, go on meetup.com. Yeah, I mean, some countries have different platforms that are more common, sometimes Eventbrite. Yeah, maybe there's some other forums where you could look in different countries. Just check what's going on already. And if no one's doing anything, maybe also go to co-working spaces or places where people seem to, cafes where people seem to work. This is always a great way of meeting people. But yeah, as I said, if no one's doing it, if you love a place and you want to spend a couple of months there or you want to come back to that particular place multiple times, you know it well, why wouldn't you start a meetup if no one's doing anything? Yeah, scratch your own itch, basically. Awesome. I also want to make sure that we talk about your professional area of expertise because we have a bunch of entrepreneurs, business owners that listen to the podcast And you are an expert in starting and running affiliate marketing programs for businesses. And I want to ask you about that. Maybe if you can just kind of talk through and explain best practices and your tips for effectively establishing and running an affiliate marketing program. Cool. Yeah. So... By now, you probably noticed that I'm a very social person. I like hanging out with people. I hang out with people all the time. And affiliate marketing is probably the most human online marketing channel that exists because you have to talk with real humans, right? So affiliate marketing, shall I just quickly say what it is in case there's someone listening? who? Right. Yes, by all means, please do. So affiliate marketing is a marketing channel where you are selling something online. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be a physical product, software, maybe even a service. And usually the best case is you are actually selling it on your website. Yeah, you're selling it online because this makes it trackable. And then essentially an affiliate is someone who promotes you on their own website or, you know whatever other platform or wherever they have an audience. And whenever there is a sale or a lead that comes through them, so this gets tracked, maybe they have a link, someone clicks on the link and ends up buying on your own website, on your own shop, the affiliate gets a commission. There's a kickback for that. So there's a bounty for every sale or lead that they bring. And there are quite a lot of nomads who are affiliates as well, right? Besides, obviously, there's people with e-commerce businesses, but there's also people who live off affiliate commissions. So, yeah, essentially, uh, very often this could be... I'll give you an example, Matt. So let's just say I sell... Well, let's keep it in the furniture example. I sell furniture. I can talk to bloggers who write about interior design. I could talk with anyone who kind of fits the target audience that I have for my product, right? And then make them write articles or put a banner on or share a link in a different way. There's multiple ways that people can promote you. And yeah, that's basically what affiliate marketing is. And in the last 10 years, I've sold pretty much everything. I've worked, I started at Vistaprint. So I don't know if you know them, but they do print on demand. So they're famous for business cards. That's where I learned what affiliate marketing was. And funny enough, a lot of people don't like affiliate marketing from the perspective that I have. So I represent my clients, right? I represent the shop, the online shop. 
And a lot of people don't like it because it's quite a lot of work because you're working with human beings. Human beings don't always do things at the pace that you want or in the way that you want. So that's frustrating. But at the same time, no cure, no pay. So if there's not a sale, if there's no sale, then there's no commission, right? So it's actually a really efficient channel if you manage it well. It's definitely less risky than, for example, paid search, which I also do, but it involves no other human beings. So a lot of my peers love those kind of channels where they can control everything very easily. I love the channel where I talk with human beings on a daily basis, where I have to convince them to do something for me because I'm not paying them up front. Remember, this changes the dynamic completely. I'm essentially asking for favors here, right? And I'm asking them to give me a chance to give my brand, the brand that I represent, an opportunity and to believe that they're definitely going to earn something at some point. So that's what I enjoy about affiliate marketing. And affiliate marketing can be done in multiple ways. So there are affiliate networks where everything gets tracked. Tracking is absolutely vital and important in this channel because if there's no tracking, then there's no fair remuneration, right? There's no way of knowing who gets what, when. And in these networks, a lot of affiliates join and a lot of merchants join and they can basically, yeah, that's where they can find each other and tracking all takes place over there. There's definitely some benefits to it. There's also some downsides. And then small businesses tend, a lot of small businesses tend to just uh, do an in-house program, which means there's no network involved. There might be some tracking software to take care of the tracking and to make sure that we know who should earn what at what point. In the last few years, I've mostly been working with programs who do it directly. And I did say small businesses tend to do this, but I also have worked with very big businesses who do this on an in-house basis. I'm curious, in your experience and all your time doing this, what are some of those highly leveraged and effective tactics to really getting results and optimizing your affiliate marketing? So I'll tell you what, there are a lot of websites out there that are kind of like easy, easy affiliates. And along the years that I've worked in this, at some point, I got a bit bored of the idea of always having the same types of website promote you. So for example, something that's really easy to do as an affiliate marketer is to just say, or an affiliate program manager, what I would be in this case, is to just talk with all the coupon code websites, get them on board, give them a coupon code, and then promote whatever brand you have. Yeah. Cashback websites, the same, very easy. It's easy for me to see results, but also a lot of businesses just don't want to be displaying their brand that way, like in a discounty kind of way, right? I've worked with a lot of fashion brands like Tommy Hilfiger and UGG and River Island and Uniqlo. These people did not want to be associated to discount or, you know, cheap. And what they wanted really was bloggers and actual content creators, YouTubers, people who write reviews or who show the product in a way that really convinces someone to buy the product. So a lot of my peers, not everyone, get demotivated by this fact that it's just, it's always the same, got them coupon code websites. I just try to listen to what the clients want and they want content creators. So I focus on getting content creators on board, bloggers, video makers, 
sometimes Instagrammers and some of these people have are obviously active amongst different platforms. They have a blog, but also Facebook page or like Instagram, et cetera. But anyways, what I do when I have a new client and let's just assume that all the tracking is already in place, I first make sure that I do a competitive research. I look at what the commissions are that other competitors are offering, whether they're cookie window. A cookie window is if as a customer I'm browsing and I'm clicking on an affiliate link and I go to, let's say, tellmehilfiger.com through that link, it's now tracked. If I buy within, let's say, 30 days and the cookie window is 60 days, then this counts as a commission for that person who brought that customer in. Yeah, so the cookie window is how long you're going to get remunerated for that click or a purchase that happened after that first time that you clicked. So how long is the cookie window? What are they offering? Are they offering coupons or what are the tools that they're offering to make life easy on their affiliates? That kind of stuff. Then after knowing what that is, I establish what a fair and competitive commission would be. And then I start going to work. So the biggest part is recruiting, activating, motivating affiliates to do the work for you, right? So the the first step would be recruiting. What I like doing is basically spying on my competitors first, who is already writing about them, about my competitors. And the way to do that is to just use some tools that SEO people tend to use. So you can just go to, for example, Ahrefs, get all the backlinks of your competitor, check which ones look like affiliate links. So sometimes you can see a little bit something in the URL that says has some sort of a reference or a number, or it says sometimes AFF, or it could be anything. You just have to look at what it could potentially be, what looks like an affiliate link. Yeah. And and that's easy because now if I reach out to those sites, they're already an affiliate of a product that they're familiar with. It's easy for me to pitch, right? It's easy for me to say, hey, if you like that product, you might also like our products or services and You know, so basically, yeah, that is super low hanging fruit. Just get affiliates who are already familiar with affiliate marketing and who are already familiar with the niche or product or service that you're in. The other step that I would do is just Google stuff that is super relevant to your service or product. What are people Googling and who's writing? Who are the blogs writing about this? Right. Just scrape the shit out of it. Get a scraper tool, scrape the first two or three pages of Google and obviously check which ones are relevant and then find out what their email addresses are. You know, I usually get a VA to do that because that's a lot of clicking and copying and pasting that I don't want to do. But, you know, let's just assume you have a new business and you don't have the funds yet to pay someone else, even though VAs are very affordable these days with geo arbitrage, I would say. But yeah, just get those contacts and email them. There's also tools for you to kind of mass email without it looking like a mass email. So I'm not talking about the MailChimps out there. There are tools out there like GMAS, for example, where you can send a particular email to a whole spreadsheet of contacts that you've now collected or your VA is now collected and it will make it look like an individual email. So it's a little bit of a numbers game where you just try to convince as many people as possible as early on as possible from when you launch. 
And that's what I would do if I would start a e-commerce or sell something online now. That's how I would start. Awesome tips. All right, Rosanna, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Lightning round. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out? Something that really changed my mindset a lot were the books by Malcolm Gladwell, especially Outliers. I think that when I read this, and it's many, many years ago, it has actually nothing to do with my nomadic life, but it's just a way that I perceived opportunities. One of the big takeaways for me at the time were just, the question is, why are some people successful and others with literally the same skills or circumstances are not, right? And it just really opened up my mind. I think from the way I was raised, I always thought nothing was possible, that there were no opportunities, that I don't know. It just changed everything about how I would perceive opportunity, growth, that I could make this happen myself if I would just have the guts to do it. Awesome. If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, all the lessons that you've learned, and you could give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Rosanna? I would say, don't listen to your parents. (laughs) Rebel more. Don't worry so much. I was a very well-behaved kid. And even though my parents had the best of intentions, especially my dad was very protective and very restrictive. And I should have gone more against that. And if I would have rebelled more, I would have learned earlier on that I can do much more than I thought. Awesome. If you could have a one-on-one dinner with any person that's currently alive today who you've never met, who would you choose? Oprah Winfrey. Even though I don't even consume much of what she does these days, What a woman. I admire her so much. This is a woman who is one of the most powerful, richest women in the world, self-made, humble, has always tried to help people. I just think she's so amazing. All right, Rosanna, of all of the places that you have traveled to at this point, what would be the top three that you would say are your favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? Yeah. Thailand, Japan, fascinating experience. I love Japan. I can't wait to go back, learn more. It is like being in another world and definitely name that one. And I don't know what to name. I love so many places, Matt. You're making it really hard for me, but Italy, it's one of those countries that has an equal obsession with food as I have. So I love that every town, every village has a specialty. And I love just driving around, going from place to place and have what they're so proud of. And to be honest, I don't think my palate is so sophisticated that I would know the difference between a tartufo from Pizzo or from the next town over. I don't think I would even know the difference, but they are so passionate about it. And it has beautiful places to see too. So yeah, Italy, even though it's a bit, maybe I guess an easy, you know, a lot of people probably name this. I would still say it is beautifully diverse and has beautiful places and has great food. 
Those are three really good picks. Those are three of my favorites as well. Cool. All right. Next question I want to ask you is what are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been before. They're the highest on your list. You'd most love to go. I've never been to Africa. Matt, come on. You've been and you have told me some amazing things about it. So I definitely have to have an African country on here. And I don't know which one to name because Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Zanzibar, Mozambique, South Africa, they're all on there. But yeah, a African country. Peru is on here. I've never been. I Every time I plan to go and somehow something comes up, but I would love to get to know Peru. And I've never been to Puglia in Italy. Have you been? Puglia? No, I have not. I've been to Italy a number of times, but I've not been there either. Because every time I ask Italian people what the best places in Italy are, Puglia is always in their list. And apparently it's just amazing. So I can't wait to go there. Amazing. That's awesome. All right, Rosanna, I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you on social media, connect with you, learn more about your business services, all that good stuff. How should people come into your universe? That's very kind. They could follow me on Facebook, Rosanna Lopez, or on Instagram at Rosanna Lopez. And rosannalopez.com for my business stuff. If you want to look at my experience, the services I offer in terms of affiliate marketing, affiliate program management and launch and that kind of stuff, as well as paid search, have a look over there, rosannalopez.com. But if you come to Lisbon, please come to our meetups. It will be lovely to meet you and to show you this amazing community that I'm so proud of. And I didn't highlight enough, Matt, how we are a team of nine people these days, nine organizers. So these are all people passionate or more about this community as I am. And this has all been teamwork. And we are, we're all working super hard to make this happen. So come check out the Lisbon Digital Nomads. Go to meetup.com and find us there. And yeah, can't wait to meet you in person. Awesome. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So everything that Rosanna just mentioned, her website, the Lisbon Digital Nomad Meetup Group, and all the stuff that we've talked about in this episode is all going to be at one place at themaverickshow.com. Just go there, go to the show notes for this episode, and you'll see the direct links. Rosanna, this was amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was so fun to talk with you, Matt. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.